Hello, welcome to Particular Good. I said particular good, not particularly good. It's a name, not a claim. Welcome, Danny and Heather. Oh, I'm so glad to be back. Uh, we are here today <laughs> to talk about Alison Monroe. I am really excited to talk to talk about Alice Monroe. Me too. Likewise. A family uh, favorite. Yeah. Heather and I bonded in our dating relationship over Alice Monroe. And um, I'll say more about that in a minute. But we ended up with all of these identical copies of Alice Monroe's books. And then we got married and we had to donate a bunch of them. <laughs> but um, yeah, she's a favorite. And I'm very excited to talk to, about her. I want to just introduce her to all of y'all. Uh, she is a Canadian author, born in 1931, and she went to college for journalism and English. She had to drop out either to, she was given a choice, go home and take care of your mother or get married. She wanted to be a writer, so she chose the latter. She got married uh, very young, had a couple of kids. They divorced eventually. And she wrote her initial short stories uh, while being a wife and mom, stay-at-home mom. And so she was raising these kids and writing short stories on the side and um, doing them bit by bit and editing them heavily. She's famous for editing and re-editing. She says she cannot read her own stories because if she did, she'd start editing them. <laughs> and uh, so she grew up in uh, World War II era Canada and um, writes about Canada. In 2013, she won the Nobel Prize in Literature for her stories. That's kind of late. It's late in her life. She was quite advanced in her writing in her life when she won that award. Uh, at that time, when she won the Nobel Prize, James Wood of The New Yorker, who's a very snooty fellow, all right? <laughs> James Wood likes to take people down. He's the most hated critic of literature by people who write, I think. What do I know? But I've heard that. And uh, he calls her R. Chekhov. Um, he says, all you have to do nowadays is write a few half-decent stories and you are R. Chekhov. But Alice Monroe really is R. Chekhov, which is to say the English language is Chekhov. So Alice Monroe, why Chekhov? I mentioned at the end of our podcast last time that sometimes she's also compared to Flannery O'Connor. I like she, Chekhov. But Chekhov... Why? Because structure, right? Structure and like uh, everything is – it's not like Flannery O'Connor is allegory or something. Like you can't reduce her stories. Mm -hmm. But right. with Alice Monroe, it feels like you really do get a slice of full life. Everyone is real. They all go off in all directions off the page. Um, there's just something more like that than in Flannery O'Connor, which is uh, more symbolic – I'm not as familiar with Chekhov, but just on the on the O'Connor note, I was left. This was my first exposure to Monroe, uh, and I was left as bothered and bewildered at the end as I was the first time I read Flannery. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> that's Max true to me. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Alice Monroe is really well known for her use of structure, uh, her symmetries. Right, so you can you can see this story is very formed by ironic symmetries, and then also by her sort of uh, unusual use of time. She, and this story is a great example of that. Um, we have a character in Fiona who starts, we start this with this lovely opening passage where it's a sparkling young couple just, just about to start a romance, uh, very vivid. And then immediately the next paragraph where 
we find ourselves uh, with 70-year-old Fiona. So we're, we skip ahead 50 years, and then there's a back and forth through their life that goes in the narration. So um, Monroe's use of time, she, she tissues it up. She, like, lays it in and throughout the story in a way that's very compelling and in the hands of a lesser writer would be very violent. Right, and confusing. Like, she's totally seamless. Nothing, nothing feels out of place. So, yeah, so the the story we read, by the way, I don't think I identified it. <laughs> Going well here. What we're, what we're talking about today, dear listeners, is the story The Bear Came Over the Mountain. The Bear Came Over the Mountain, which was published in The New Yorker in uh, December 27th, 1999, and is also found in Monroe's collection of short stories which was published in 2001 called Hate Ship, Friendship, Courtship, Love Ship, Marriage. And I love this collection of short stories. It, I, I, it's the one I always recommend people uh, when they're like, hey, what, what's the, where should I start with Alice Monroe? It's a really good collection. Despite the fact that I read it for the first time while uh, hiking on a 13-day hiking trip with high schoolers that I got roped into, in the middle of our dating relationship. And this was the first time in our young relationship, about a year we've been dating, that we had not talked, uh, Heather. Uh, and I was not happy about it, especially because I was hiking about 10 miles a day in the rain <laughs> with high school boys. And I, I didn't want – it wasn't my trip. I kind of got dragged in. So every night I would read a short story by Alice Monroe from this collection and write Heather a letter. And uh, then I, I brought these letters back, and they were very depressing. <laughs> <laughs> Quite dark. <laughs> Heather was like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Writing from the war front. <laughs> I really <laughs> had that feeling. Yeah. That the, pa the pages were damp. It was like raining the whole time. <laughs> and these stories are not like uh, cheerful, all of them. Yeah, no. They are not. So anyway, um, The Very Kingdom of the Mountain covers uh, the – Heather. Yeah. I'm going to shut up. Tell us what this story is about. Well, that's my first question. <laughs> so it's, uh, like you said, framed by this young couple about to get married, but the bulk of the story is the degeneration of, of the wife, Fiona, um, her descent into either like Alzheimer's or dementia. It's not ever really clear um, with these memories of their of their marriage, sort of like throughout the time they were married, his professional life, um, his infidelities. And it is sort of uncategorizable, I would say. Like there are these elements and themes where you could you could use this story to talk about like Me Too, about the change in, in sexual ethics from the 60s and onward, the sexual revolution and how that affected family life and relationships. But even though that's like heavily in there and really interesting, it's really not the central theme either. Like then you're confronted with this idea of losing someone that you love, mm -hmm. of how you love each other through this, uh, the ups and downs of a full life of marriage through infidelity, through illness. And in the course of, of Fiona's degeneration, she's placed into a nursing home for people, like a memory care facility. And she falls in love with, with this stranger. Um, and then when her husband, Grant, comes to visit her for the first time, 
he's a stranger to her and she sort of like socially takes care of him but is really focused on this new guy who, you know, she shouldn't even have a relationship with at all. So then like how do you love someone in that situation? It just goes on and on. I I was going to ask like what is this story about? <laughs> love, memory, family, fidelity. I th- I think that Alice Monroe has this incredible way of writing about real people. Um, it really does feel like a whole life is just touched in this story at different moments. Um, and you can't totally tease it out. Like there's there's not a way to summarize what happens, I think. Does that – I mean, it's not necessarily a helpful thing to say on a podcast <laughs> about a story, but um, – it's what I love about Alice Monroe. What do you What do you think? What's the point? What does this story mean? Wow, I don't know. I mean, I think overwhelmingly it's about Grant actively engaging his memory to still be with his wife. Because it, it, it's striking me now that you you attempt a summary that <laughs> we don't uh, <laughs> we don't sort of hear his inner dialogue when he goes home at night after the nursing home. It just moves on to a new memory. There's no the story moves so so quickly and there's no i mean the, the the pacing is is impeccable but it's not a it's also not a, a slice of life in that sense of like here's a a, a three month window and we right. get all the blow by blows it's it's like i i think exactly what you said you get a sense of like the whole of what's happening to him but but captured in this sort of i don't know rhapsodic like you get the major movements and the and the high points but uh the only time we do get, I don't know, his interior life outside of the nursing home is 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 with Marion, and yeah. it's not a pretty picture. <laughs> um, and obviously, there's there's parallels there because all the all the historical memories we get from him are of uh, infidelity and in his. I don't know. It's not really repentant of anything. Um, no. And the only time he approaches repentance, it's in this interior dialogue about being proud that Marion seems to like him. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I, I think I would say it's it's about him. Uh, yeah, his reception of, of Fiona, whether he even wants to be present to her. It's actually really unclear to me what he wants um, in going to visit her. But he's uh, kind of obsessed. Yes. Yeah. He. Yeah. I love this where he... We have these symmetries where he's a philanderer and then he gives up his philandering because of the threat to his professional life that eventually comes and to his relationship with Fiona that he foresees. And then she just like she loses her memory. All he has is his memories. And that's how we discover their life is through his memory as she's lost hers. But then he goes to visit her and he describes his first visit to her in the memory care facility as like the morning of one of these meetups with another woman, the excitement, the nervousness and so on. And then he gets there and she's already engaged in a, a meetup with Aubrey, her new lover. And he interrupts it. She has to try to like deal with him like he's a visitor. So the philanderer has come to his latest meetup, but with his own wife, but then she's with someone else. And then 
because of her grief over losing him, he ends up trying to get Aubrey back for for Fiona and ends up in a romantic relationship with Aubrey's wife, which he does at least partially, it seems like, in order to get Aubrey back to Fiona. And then with this terrible ending, <laughs> uh, he comes uh, to tell Fiona the good news that Aubrey's coming or, and, and, uh, and Fiona can't remember then the Aubrey and, only, and suddenly remembers him. Comes back to herself. Yeah. So all these symmetries play out with some f- humorous irony. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you don't get you do have a sort of undulating the character that is the character unfolds through all of these moments. There's not like a transformation. No. No. Like you find in Flannery. There's not a despite these things that could even be twists, there's not a violent moment. No. You know? It's all just tension and structure. Like everything is perfectly I always think of her stories as like a a tent perfectly set up. <laughs> tension. <laughs> the, the tension of a structure that just like is perfectly there. That seems to That's hold nice. in the middle of the air. Like how is it off the ground? You don't know, but there it is. The story so swiftly moves from he's effectively talked into not visiting for the first month. That's the advice he receives from the memory care facility that it's easier for the patients to adjust if they have, you know, a full 30 days without seeing people from outside, it lets them kind of sink in and it's better for their health. And then um, it's funny when the nurses describe those early days, it's, it's, oh, well, she got a cold, but that happens. It's just like school children, they're exposed to new germs and stuff. So there's this almost like quick move to like, it's a child in a new environment. But then what Grant discovers right away is that her adjusting to this new environment definitely happened. But it's adjusting to an environment that he's not at all a part of. Yeah. Um, what's striking about that that first visit? There's there's language that I wanted to grab where where Grant notices that the love that they had is impossible, and it seems like it crystallizes for him that she's adjusted and what they had is impossible in this same moment. And maybe it's subtle, or maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into it. She offers to get him tea. And there's this this quick line, Grant never drank tea. Mm-hmm. Like first first big clue, like she, she doesn't know who I am. I, w- I would never take tea. He could not throw his arms around her. Something about her voice and smile, familiar as they were, something about the way she seemed to be guarding the players from him, as well as him from their displeasure, made that impossible. So yeah, what I wanted to highlight there was this sense that um, she needs this adjustment time, but the the gift and the danger of that adjustment time is that it's it's in a decisive way adjusting to life without her spouse. And I think that's also why he can never sort, he's never explicitly upset about it actually. He's just kind of grappling with how to how to manage it now. Where do I fit in with, with Aubrey? But it's like the thing happened. And on the one hand, I think the story is about, is he seeing that as the end of his marriage? Did she effectively die for him? What are his duties in the, in the light of the fact that like this will never be the same. And he doesn't have, as they sort of promised when she was first checked in, he doesn't have any of those glimpses of like her suddenly uh, seeing him that he would have expected, you know, a day on, a day off, a day on, a day off. That's where the story ends. You get one one good moment, but it's after too late. After so long. It's after so long. He's, it doesn't take a philanderer long to move on, I guess, but um, <laughs> he's already moved on. So 
I think in one sense, the story begins with a sort of a, a, a death of their marriage. Um, and we get to see him process the fact that that happened, mm -hmm. but as a, as not a good dude who tries to be a good dude. Well, and, and throughout, I don't know if it's the death of their marriage because the whole time, the way that they, that he talks about and thinks about and processes and remembers their relationship is different than I would think of mm -hmm. like a roman any romantic relationship or especially a marriage where he talks about the first time he had a relationship outside of Fiona after they were married and it's like it was too intense this woman got too into it it hmm. was like this new time sexual revolution we were all experimenting or whatever and they got really attached and then after that, it was just like a string of young students, uh, <laughs> like over and over and over again, same story every time. But he constantly reflects on how he's glad it didn't go too far. The first time was too far and he never did that again. Um, so he never exploded his marriage. He never lost everything because Fiona was still his structure, was still his life. Mm -hmm. Um, and all the sex he was having on the side is like uh, almost irrelevant to that. Um, it's just something else. And it's sort of in the same way, it's like she she's gone, but he's still seeing her all the time. He's still like entering into her new world, which is small and strange, um, but he gets to know it. He talks about how um, they used to visit their neighbor who had ended up there mm -hmm. um, and how it always seemed very disruptive to him. Um, and learning more about the place, he realizes like it becomes your world, like the patterns are are all that you know and like that's that's what life is. So when people from the outside come in, you feel like you have to explain it or it's just awkward and it's better not to. So he's still like tuned into Fiona as his you know, constant as, as his life, um, even in her new context, like he gets to know the routines of that place. He's sort of in it. He's even in it to the extent of like being in her relationship with this guy, like whoever yeah. she is now, he's, he's still focused on that. So I, w I wouldn't say it was the death of their marriage, but it's like a new, a new form. I don't yeah, know. no, I'm, I'm certainly grasping for words there. I, I think I suppose that just what's animating that is I, I don't understand his love for his wife is is so well it has to take a different form than 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 mine for my wife now and it's hard to I suppose it's just hard to relate to in the sense that uh, I, I think you can read this story and see that he loves Fiona I think that's clear yeah I also think that the relationship is obviously historically troubled and we see pretty quickly that he's those tendencies aren't aren't gone. So I actually think the harder question, or maybe just what she's depicting and what's so beautiful about the tension here is that he doesn't love her particularly well. And we get to see that. It's inadequate in places. It's, it's, it's poignantly beautiful in others. It's, it's actually selflessly charitable, you know, being willing to be the guy that brings Aubrey over, like to right. bring your wife's suitor to you in, in, in both of your infirmities, that's, that's really striking. Um, he sort of overcomes his initial reaction yeah. of, of jealousy and, and, but it's mixed. You also might get the sense that he wants Marion to sell the house so that Aubrey can be in the nursing home permanently and they can do new lives that way. Just just spouse swap. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. I see that. Maybe I'm just afraid of, of that possibility in my own life. But I see that that 
darkness there. And it's, I don't know. It, yeah. I, I feel like that's a, that's a cynical view. Mm, maybe. I, well, and I, I like, I think a cynical view is fair. This guy is gross. I mean, mm-hmm. no, not to cast judgment, but like the string of undergraduates is, is quite shocking to read. Like, I, I don't think that it's not like his decisions are celebrated at all. Like mm-hmm. it's, it really is framed in, in this sort of neutral way where it's like, this is what he did. But I didn't see it as like a, he wants to be free of Fiona. He, or at least explicitly he frames it sort of as like how ironic that in order to help her, I am in this situation where I'm going to like, you know, date this woman so that Fiona can get what she wants. I, I really, yeah, I, I see it as a sort of, neutral view of how complicated relationships can be and how like people come to their own terms in ways that mm-hmm. aren't always appealing from the outside but that yeah have their own terms in ways that I've I have a yeah I have a trouble I have trouble like figuring out oh, that's beautiful yeah yeah because he um he gets this charge from the the affairs but then doesn't want to give up his marriage, like the, they're both, he wants both. Um, uh, he, he describes when he starts the affairs, he it says a tendency to pudginess with which he had, which he had had since he was twelve years old disappeared. He ran up steps two at a time. He appreciated as never before a pageant of torn clouds and winter sunsets, seen from his office window. The charm of antique lamps glowing beside his neighbors living room curtains, the cries of children in the park at dusk, unwilling to leave the hill where they'd been tobogganing. Come summer, he learned the names of the flowers. So he uh, he is revitalized by these relationships, the romance of them. Yeah, he's got virility again. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's made virile. But then um, he doesn't want to, when it comes down to it, when he has this dream, you know, the idea that he would be called out and lose Fiona is is his motivation for ending all those things. But then he feels pretty satisfied that he had done that right at the right moment and not take anything too far. Yeah. There's like, I don't know, there's kind of like a patheticness to, to it. Like you're this thing that you want to protect and you're like, oh, this is more important. This is the most important thing. But like you're like glad the timing worked out, bro. Like you're really, you really are risking it. Like, mm-hmm. do you think Fiona is happy about that? She, he talks about how she like was never uh, indulgent in the same way. Like she was always herself. She was always um, faithful to him and not like messing around. Mm-hmm. Right. And she also didn't in- indulge his fantasies about himself. Like she was like your Icelandic thing you've, that he would use to such uh, effect with the with the young ladies. She's like, whatever, these stories are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a sense that like she's the real deal, and he's sort of not, with like in her family life and mm-hmm. um, in her person. You guys surely remember. There's a he notices that her hair has been cut, and he finally asks her, you know, why did they chop your hair off? And she she didn't notice. Yeah. For me, that was just another moment of of uh, her life is so different now, and I'm I'm outside of it. Uh, it's, it's just striking, mm-hmm. and I, I'm reflecting on that in the light of um, when he's talking about the the times and the young women and and the kinds of women that would take his classes. 
there's a there's a great line in there about um, in response to the sexual revolution, the the so to speak normal wives of the time would also put on those costumes of sexual nonchalance. Like everybody yeah. started to give in that way, and the sense you get is that Fiona didn't play along in that game, and that's kind of partly why she became and remained his stability. He could always kind of compare her to the women who were, I mean, as the story says, it points looser and, and things like that. Um, he always had a better place to be. Yeah. Sort of they're less real. Yeah. And I like that the point about the hair. It's like she's when we are introduced to her, we're sort of given a lot of information about her appearance, about her clothes. Mm. Um, she's very put together. And then as she stays in this place longer, he starts to realize like she's she's wearing other people's clothes. Like yeah. they they just dress them in in whatever's clean. And it is, yeah, this feeling of like loss of identity, loss of self. And then what he's doing with that. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She starts speaking differently. Yeah, to, dear heart. Yeah, what is it? She said, what is it, dear heart? Grant had never heard her use this flowery expression before. Mm. It's really, like, I, all. there's all these levels of the story, and it's, it's fascinating on all of the, the sort of relational things going on and, and even historical things. It's, like, it's all very interesting. But I just keep thinking about, it feels very real with the aging mm -hmm. and dementia and dealing with with loved ones who have Alzheimer's. It's like it's just a brutal story. <laughs> it's brutal, and you get all the drama with no interpretation. Like you're just meant to sit yeah. with it, and it's so it it's can't like do anything footage. but hit you. Yeah, yeah. It's so subtle too because she's a very classic writer like a real literary realism mm -hmm. the details are just abundant the flowers are named the <laughs> the clothes are identified by color and shape you know this is mm -hmm. very very there's tons of literary detail very realism but very subtly from within the perspective of the characters without it being sort of overwhelming you know mm -hmm. you you this amazing scene where grant goes over to Marion's house where Aubrey is sitting in the wheelchair. And then he takes in their house and her tan and her clothes and her coffee maker. And she talks about the coffee maker as a gift from an absent son who sends her gifts instead of showing up. And all of this intricate detail is experienced through Grant's eyes, but at the same time is one of the most vivid, like you immediately understand where you're at and what the room looks like and who the woman is. And um, it's very, within a few paragraphs, you're dealing with a whole world. Totally elegantly, yeah, where it, it just like everything goes off the page in every direction. It's like, oh, the sun is real. Like you get the sun even though, like you said, it's all from Grant's perspective and he's taking it in his way, but you still know that guy, you yeah, know? Yeah. it's She's incredible. And that's... I just love all the storytelling is the same way. Like he's talking about when Fiona got those beautiful dogs <laughs> um, and how they like look like her and are suited to her and sort of were her replacement children because they couldn't have kids for some physical reason. He couldn't remember. He never like paid attention to all of that. Like I think it, I think he's female tubing, female apparatus, apparatus or something yeah. where it's like, and all of that's like three sentences. Right. Yeah, it's so clear. And oh, you, man. you could sort of feel it from her perspective, but it's all framed from him in a way that is like uniquely him. 
It's like that experience when you are talking with someone and they're telling their side of a story about their marriage and suddenly you can see the other person and how they must be experiencing it. Yeah. Even while you're like having the conversation with the, their husband or something. Yeah. And you feel like you just want to end the conversation with the person you're talking to and like go make sure they're okay. <laughs> Talk to the other one. Yeah. yeah. But uh, it's like throughout. Like Fiona is described directly – but a lot of you get a lot of Fiona through his memory and you but she's still and even though his view is partial, like how does she do that? Like you understand as he thinks of her that your view is partial and at the same time in the ghost of his memory, she's like shimmering. You can just like you can tell see exactly mm -hmm. who she is. Yeah, like she's so important to him. She's sort of everything, but at the same time you can tell how she's underappreciated or like underserved by him in these specific ways. It's, it's, it's really, she's just such a good writer. Yeah. She never wrote a novel. Oh, really? Yeah. Which, uh, but, but that's because, as people often say, all of her short stories are novels, basically. Oh. <laughs> They're as long yeah, as they need to be. All the drama. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they accomplish so much, so. Yeah. yeah, I'm just I'm newly basking in the language now. I mean, the, the, all the details of the story stuck, but now as I kind of look at it, just let me take a sentence at random. There's a paragraph describing the houses on the street that Marion and Aubrey live in. And then the, the first sentence of the next paragraph, the house that was listed in the phone book as belonging to Aubrey and his wife was one of these. And with such a simple description, you immediately link up the prior paragraph with where Marion and Aubrey live, and you get this sense that Grant had the phone book, found their address, looked it up, went through the trouble, and you get, therefore, like a whole day's worth of like agonizing over, am I going to go over there? How do I find the place to determine? So in like one sentence, you get so many things linked up, and it's so beautiful. In the same way, too, just, just a, a little bit later, he describes Aubrey as the answer to Fiona's prayers, but the sentence is, the answer to Fiona's prayers sat a few feet away watching what sounded like a ball game. And another <laughs> author could have just put Aubrey sat a few feet away listening to what sounded like a ball game. Right. But the insertion of Fiona and the depth of, of saying it's the answer to Fiona's prayers, it, you like immediately the drama is incarnate in, in what could have just been his name, but it's all there. It's so beautiful. Yeah, you can tell how much editing that would like, mm. yeah, she's just mm. trimming and trimming and trimming probably. Maybe some of these started as novels. <laughs> <laughs> Heather, I want to talk, well, both of you, I want to talk about the ending. But Heather, could you read the last paragraph? Sure. Um, if you've gotten this far without reading the story, you know, hopefully you, dear listeners, will have stopped and gone and found the story, which you can find online, Barracking Over the Mountain. But uh, yeah, so now I'd like... Um, we're going to talk about the ending, so let's read the ending. Okay. Fiona was in her room, but not in bed. She was sitting by the open window, wearing a seasonable but oddly short and bright dress. Through the window came a heady, warm blast of lilacs in bloom, and the spring manure spread over the fields. She had a book open in her lap. She said, look at this beautiful book I found. It's about Iceland. You wouldn't think they'd leave valuable books lying around in the rooms. The people staying here are not necessarily honest, and I think they've got the clothes mixed up. I never wear yellow. Fiona, he said, you've been gone a long time. Are we all checked out now? Fiona, I've brought a surprise for you. Do you remember Aubrey? She stared at him for a moment as if waves of wind had come beating into her face, into her face, into her head, pulling everything to rags. 
Names elude me, she said harshly. Then the look passed away as she retrieved, with an effort, some bantering grace. She set the book down carefully and stood up and lifted her arms to put them around him. Her skin or her breath gave us a, a faint new smell, a smell that had seemed to him like that of the stems of cut flowers left too long in their water. I'm happy to see you, she said, and pulled his earlobes. You could have just driven away, she said, just driven away without a care in the world and forsook me, forsooken me, forsaken. He kept his face against her white hair, her pink scalp, her sweetly shaped skull. He said, not a chance. It's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so much there. Yeah. Say more. By the way, before we do, I have to say, Danny and I are reading the New Yorker version, and you've got the book version. Oh, and this, is it different? There's, there's a, little, there's a this, couple subtle differences. Yeah. The, it's great because... That's just what she said. That like anytime she gets a story and puts it somewhere else, she just <laughs> added some more. It. So she's edited this last. Uh, your version is. So you read you read cut stems in something about water. We have like green stems in rank water. Sentence ends. Oh. There's a couple. There's little changes in but the first half that are. I love them both. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're both good. But uh, Heather's version that she read is the most. It's the most more definitive. recent. Ah. Uh, you could, yeah, yeah, that's so much better. The stems of cut flowers left too long in their water. It's like communicates mm. what you said. The passage of time. But yeah. Yeah, fuller. Yeah, she's the master. She keeps doing it. All right, anyway, so sorry. <laughs> it was distracting you. Text, text critical notes. Bible scholars <laughs> always ruining beauty. <laughs> All right, go ahead. With um, what? Oh. <laughs> Sorry. What what moves you about this this ending, Heather? I don't know. I feel like it, it sort of contains this whole chapter of their lives a little bit where she's she's back and as herself is pointing out all that is sort of wrong and depleted about their current situation. She's alone. She found the book that he gave her that she didn't recognize at the time. Um, she sees that she's wearing other people's clothes, that she's in this place. And she's still confused, like, have they checked out yet? But the thing that she, like, comes away with is that he has stood by her, that he didn't, he didn't forsake her and leave her there alone. He's still trying and, and focused on her. And that's, I mean, it is, it's like, uh, each relationship is unique between two people, um, and has its own terms and its own foibles and, and problems, but they do love each other and in their, in their unique, they're like, you know, the, the Iceland book, the, her wordplay, all of it is sort of there between them. I think it's really beautiful and it's also really depressing. Yeah, it is. And it's funny how that I, I mentioned time at the beginning and keep, things keep striking me with this. Like uh, when he comes back to the nursing home the first time, or the memory care facility the first time, <clears throat> she doesn't remember him, but she remembers her childhood. And so she immediately speaks to him about Aubrey, who is from the hardware store in her youth, right? So we are suddenly back at the opening of the story, these couple of paragraphs that Monroe basically abandons, and then we're 50 years later. But she goes back to 
to there in the, her recounter of meeting Aubrey because she knew him before when she was a girl. And uh, at that same time that she'd had several suitors and he took her out on a date around that time. And then eventually she landed on Grant. You know, this is so at that point, his first meeting with her, she's back in the earlier days. And then now she's back with him um, right after that same moment, right? The, the, the moments collide there because and he's now had all of this experience with her, with her away with her not remembering him with her in a different time altogether and now she comes back to his time with no knowledge of it and she literally thinks that the place where we left off where he comes back that like that's where they are like that, that he's just gone and filled out the paperwork and so everything that's happened in the story is gone for her and now they're back at this other narrative moment and um he he embraces it he eventually learned to embrace her other timeline, and now he embraces this one. Yeah, it's sort of like even if you lose each other, you don't lose each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's so poignant. And I also, I mean, I, I can't help but wonder. It's a story that makes me want to hear more about what happens next or at least wonder about the possibilities of what happens next because you remember that Marion's early fear was that Aubrey would just get upset by these visits and he wouldn't want to come home. And we don't know actually if, if this was his permanent return to the nursing home or just a visit, mm -hmm. but he's in the room when this happens. He doesn't have a great <laughs> reunion with Fiona. Yeah. Um, and perhaps this was just the one even moment in that day of lucidity and Grant's going to come back the next day fired up with that hope and, and probably strong enough to live through the next kind of alternate timeline period. But I wonder now, uh, is Aubrey out of it? Is this is this a, a sort of another new beginning for Fiona at the home where Aubrey right. can't factor in? Or yeah, do they remember each other at yeah. all at this point? Yeah, and that but that just layers the the beauty of the moment because it's it's such a it's such a pure reunion, you know, not a chance, right? Mm. <laughs> but also, he's standing behind Aubrey's wheelchair, right? <laughs> It's like, I can't tell. And, uh, and that's what this ambiguity is ending too. Is yeah. Aubrey right there? It's just like, he says. That's true. I've that, brought a surprise true. for you. Do you I remember Aubrey? I've brought but a surprise with him. you. Do you yeah. remember Aubrey? Mm -hmm. And then we get this beautiful description that Heather already read. She stared at Grant for a moment as if waves of wind had come beating into her face, into her face, into her head, pulling everything to rags, all rags and loose threads. So she's overwhelmed, and then she pulls herself together to be gracious again, and then goes and puts her arms around Grant and puts her face up to his face so much that she can grab his earlobes. And um, and it's like Aubrey, if he's in the room, which is kind of ambiguous, I think he's there, but it's like he's not mentioned. He could be right outside the door. He could be outside yeah, the door. Right, right. It's it's so funny that the, the, the ambiguity of like um, Aubrey being so like suddenly not existing, just like Grant didn't exist before. Yeah. Yeah. And, and is, is all lost? Like, how does he feel about all this effort he's gone through by sort of dating this woman to get his husband for Fiona? How does he feel about bringing him there? Does it damper his experience of this reunion? Does it not matter at all? Like, Is it the similar thing where he doesn't care about the women after they're gone and the thing that remains forever and ever is Fiona? Um, 
and this is true for her too, and here they are back together, or is it that too cheerful of a, a reading? Well, and even if it's, is that cheerful? No, I, don't I, think, know. I don't know. <laughs> it's it's like better than nothing, I guess, but it's it's not a, everything that I want from a marriage, <laughs> just as an aside. Yeah. <laughs> well, to your point, Heather, though, that's, uh, this is, it's ambiguous at best or ambivalent. I'm never sure which is the case. But it's also so it's so believable. It's so visible. It's so like this is the moment they got, and it, it leaps off the page. But who knows if that's all they get? Yeah. Uh, who knows if Aubrey walks in right after he says "not a chance" and it's gone? You know, the illusion is 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 destroyed. Or there's a um, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure because Alice Monroe refuses to moralize in her. Yeah. Stories. Mm-hmm. This this neutral stance is a very particular thing. You know, it's a realist stance. A lot of writers would would claim this, but I feel like she 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 really uh, does. She it. hones that into this sheen, where it seems difficult to know, like what like we asked, what the point or the meaning. Who knows? And also, what the moral stance of of the authors certainly we don't know. But even the mm-hmm. the the people, um, and even what we're I don't hardly even know how to take it but the the title uh the bear came over the mountain what does that mean it's this nursery rhyme right the bear went over the mountain to see what he could see uh-huh. and what does he see when he gets on the other side of the mountain the other side of the mountain the other side of the mountain <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but she subtly changes the title from the bear went over the mountain to the bear came over the mountain which is Evocative, but I don't really know. <laughs> I don't have anything intelligent to say about it. But this um, return of the bear, if you will, the bear came over the mountain, and here again is the other person. The, the, the marriage, I'm going to take, I'm going to say this. The marriage is the other person is there. They came over the mountain. And where they find they found each other again. This is what keeps happening over and over. Yeah. Um, and that is both. I'm not sure that it's a celebration of everything that's happening, but I, I do think there is a, and the symmetries, the ironies, it all leads to this. Like we're going round and round. We're doing this. We're doing that. In the end, here's what we have. This could be either sort of nihilistic or kind of beautiful, but maybe both. Yeah, I love that. The sense that all of these these misadventures and these changes over time, they're, we meet them when they're so young. We get a lot of stuff about middle age. We have this, this old age tale, and it's all sort of like they're all just them. Yeah. Like It's the two of them. It's their mm-hmm. relationship. It's who they are. They're together through all of that and through all the changes. There's time, there's events, there's ups and downs, there's memory, there's losing weight <laughs> in both <laughs> cases. He loses weight because of the romance. She loses weight because of romance when she's deprived of it. Oh, yeah. Um, but in the end, um, they don't, they're, they're themselves throughout, just like totally sort of relentlessly. And you see in, in their patterns of language and the way they talk to each other and her wordplay and it's all sort of cyclical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there's way more doubling than I was totally thinking about as I read it. I like your I like your structure points, Charles. Uh, 
and the doubling without i, I mean i'm comparing her directly to o'connor because that's what we just we most recently talked about but there's no uh, you know, and suddenly the inbreaking of the light where something dawns on him, even if it's too late. There's just no, there's no dawning. It's, it's just all happening. There's no interpretation and there's not, you know, we don't, and Grant thought to himself, wow, it was all worth it, which would be a really lame <laughs> way to put it. Right. <laughs> but you just get to see the moment where they're, they're reunited and there's lucidity. And I think Monroe has the courage to just, allow us to feel it with them and see that without having to i mean in some sense i think she she would just not want to provide an interpretation to because she's really sketched a sort of real life and you can imagine the drama for for anyone dealing with this this is a a cyclical thing this is not going to be the first time not the first instance there's particular details to grant but I would believe hearing a story like this and i would assume i i think the next time i get anywhere near a nursing home, I'm probably going to have to pull off the road and <laughs> weep, weep over this story. Yeah. Um, but far be it from me, and I think far be it from Monroe to like say anything about their love other than how beautiful, actually, that that got to happen. Just try to show it. Just yeah. show it. So we've, we've talked about this before. I think one of your friends has Rick Rosengarten. Does he, he do like a Christian literature class that includes Alice Monroe? Is that true? Am I totally making that up? He definitely does include Alice Monroe. Yeah, but his book is about Vey Kala. Oh, no. And, oh, no, you're not talking about his book. No, okay, I yeah, just mean. Class. Yeah, he, he teaches Monroe. Yeah. An artist. Is she? Well. I, Whatever that means. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, she's not like, it's not like Flattery O'Connor. It's not like religious themes are are heavily incorporated in, in her work at all. It's all people living their lives sort of, and like we've said, neutrally presented, but. I don't know why that, like, I hope this ha was a conversation with us at some point. I'm not just totally making it up. <laughs> I don't remember. But I think it was included on some Christian lit class that we were talking about. Um, and I was like, that's an interesting choice. Uh -huh. Why Alice Monroe, um, in that context, if you're talking about Catholic artists or Christian artists, like, she wouldn't be the first that came to mind. Um, but actually, I think that she's an incredible addition to considering literature in that way because she's just the best writer of human nature that I think I've ever read. Mm -hmm. And like we've said, she has this sort of neutral stance where she's just presenting people as they are in their like foibles and in their goodness. But it's all such a mix <laughs> that it, yeah. it feels like really hard to tease out. And even when you have judgments about characters, it's like you can sort of see how that's on you Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you're sort of bringing it to the text a little bit. Like my feelings about Grant go beyond what's in the <laughs> what's in the story, certainly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I just think like, how do you do that? It's incredible. Her observation and the subtlety with which she presents people is is amazing. Yeah, yeah. She's uh, she's a master. I mean, I think she's, in my view, I think she's the best living writer in the world <laughs> she's very old now so she gets to be that i think <laughs> take her take her moment yeah besides the beauty of her ending i have to say what i most i mean just to echo what you said heather what i most liked about this story was the sequence where grant knows what's going on with marion sitting by the phone waiting yeah 
And he even goes through Marion's supposed mental calculus about yeah. like, well, she's probably assuming, you know, if I if I stop somewhere on the way home and well, she's sitting by the phone right now. I just know it. And then and then sure be it. She actually calls him when he's down in the basement or, or she's whatever. She's yeah. down in the basement. And here's a phone call. But he he gives he's you get the sense that Grant has this brilliant if if twisted and perverted like knowledge of how a woman's mind works. And yeah. the fact that Monroe believably paints a man like that as having it's the layers it's amazing it's amazing i thought about that i i thought exactly the same yeah. thing when i was reading her portrayal of him i thought this woman really understands men and then i realized that like yeah what what i'm seeing here is that his understanding of women yep. and his male understanding of women is right. what alice portrays so vividly yeah, it's, yeah. Um, it's she's just like incredible. Everything. Yeah, the, I love. It. <laughs> he stayed near the phone looking at magazines, but he didn't pick up when it rang again. <laughs> 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 He's just like loving it. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. Well, very good. This is uh, any any final thoughts on this story? We're going to wrap up this episode. I am glad I'm Catholic in order to read this story. I mean. To have a, a more profound hope that that even in this poignant drama, there's more afterward, I think is necessary. I, I almost can't imagine encountering this as a a young churchless lover. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it might seem too prophetic or something. Yeah, where does this all lead? Yeah. What, yeah. what are we doing? Yeah. So even if she's not a, a you know a, a Christian writer, so to speak, and of course I'd have questions about what that even means, a la O'Connor. It, because it's so human, it strikes to the core of of all the concerns of of what it means to read things as a Catholic. So, yeah, bravo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this isn't this isn't a rarity. You know, like it, pick up any story of hers, and mm. it, the whole world is is in there. It's amazing. We're big fans of Alice Munro, but um, yeah, all of her story collections, the, the sheer number of her stories it's is shocking. Um, I, it'd be interesting to know exactly how many, but there's a bunch of collections when I'm not to the end of them, and they're all pretty powerful. This is one of her most famous stories. Um, they're all incredible. Well, thank you, Danny, and thank you, Heather, for joining us uh, today for like uh, another discussion of thank literature, you, yeah, which we're going to be doing and uh, some upcoming episodes. Heather and I are going to be talking about another intellectual giant by the name of Iris Murdoch, whose novel The Bell we'll be discussing, and also her philosophical work, uh, The Sovereignty of Good. And we're also going to have some people on the podcast. We're going to do some interviews coming up, and uh, I'll tell you more about those uh, another time. But uh, St. Bernard's School of Theology and Ministry, located in Rochester, New York. We have master's degrees online and in person in Rochester, Buffalo, Albany, Syracuse, and Allentown, Pennsylvania. So if you'd like to sign up to take some courses with uh, some people who want to talk to you about theology and literature, feel free to do so. Uh, you'll get to meet the lovely Danny Drain in person, as well as Heather Hughes-Huff and others of similar caliber. Hope you have a great day and talk to you later. Bye. <laughs>